Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. I'm Cynthia Pooler, and my guest today is Michael Burgess. And Michael is going to talk about his new book, Franklin and Eleanor in New York. So, you, how are you, uh, Mike? Are you getting ready for Christmas? I'm trying like we all are in this last few days, but I think it's under control, hopefully. So, um, you know, you've written books about sports and Olympics and stuff, but this book is about the President of the United States and his wife. What made you decide to concentrate on politics in your new book? Well, all of my books, including the ones about the Olympics, were about the history of the Olympics and the politics. But yeah, this is the history uh, here in Albany, and and I was, I've always been interested in thinking, you know, since I live in Albany and worked in government, what what, it, what was it like when Franklin Roosevelt was governor here? And I I just thought, you know, and I'd love to bring this story to to reality, you know, so that people who have worked in government or who like Roosevelt could understand more about it. So that was the reason and also because I worked in the field of aging and you know social security I always knew that he created that and and that it right. started here in New York. Right, right. So before he became governor of New York was he involved in politics before that? Oh, yeah. He was in the state legislature. He was elected in 1910 to the state Senate, Um, and that was his first elective office. People don't realize that, you know, um, he he was an admirer of his uh, cousin, Teddy Roosevelt, and was an ally of his, even though they were Democrat and Republican. They were different, but it was a progressive era. Um, but then he went to to Washington as Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson. That was the only other job that he held. And then he got polio and made a comeback as as governor. So when he was working uh, for President Wilson, did he contract the Spanish flu at all? Do you know? Yes, he did. He he got uh, sick on a ship on the way back from World War One. When toward the end of the war, he had been over there as a secretary, assistant secretary of Navy. Came back after being at the battlefields, and there are a lot of folks on the ship who got sick, and he got sick, and he was he had double pneumonia related to the Spanish mm-hmm. flu. And he he was a sickly guy, you know. He got a lot of other things, which I guess people did get back then, you know. Uh, uh, he wasn't able to run campaign for state senate in 1912 because he had typhoid. I think I said in the book. Um, so yeah, it was a tough time, and I like to make that you know, comparison, you know, because in those days epidemics were pretty common. Oh wow, wow! So um, was was Franklin Roosevelt the last politician who rose from? the New York State Senate to president? Well, let's see. We haven't had any uh, New Yorker who's been president since him except Donald Trump, and he didn't didn't participate in the state legislature. 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, from the New York Senate, he went to on to be governor. You know, people don't realize that Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, was actually the Democratic nominee for vice president in 1920. That was 12 years before he became president. So he was pretty well known, as was the whole Roosevelt family. But he lost that election against, that was the year that Warren G. Harding was elected president. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one of the uh, chapters you have is life at the executive mansion. You know, I live right around the corner from the executive mansion, and I knew that there was a lot of stuff built just for uh, FDR, one of them being an elevator because he couldn't go up and down the steps. So what was built to accommodate um Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his handicap of polio. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I actually wasn't aware it was built during his time. But the thing I did mention in the book was that uh, there were some greenhouses behind the mansion, and he had them converted into a swimming pool because he was getting therapy in Warm Springs, Georgia, at the springs there for his polio and he wanted to continue to be able to swim. In fact, he didn't really want to run for governor in 1928. Al Smith twisted his arm and said, I need you to run, uh, because Roosevelt still wanted to be in Warm Springs to continue his therapy so he could walk better. But he said, well, okay, they told me that they're going to draft me, and it's my call to duty, so I'm going to come back and, and run for governor. So how many... How many people from Albany, when he became uh, president in 32, how many people from Albany did he take down to Washington with him? Well, he took a lot of them because just like nowadays, you know, he took his key advisors, any president would. But in those days, uh, the people who'd worked with him in New York were became famous in Washington, especially Frances Perkins, the first woman ever in the president's cabinet who had been the first, I think she was also the first woman here in the cabinet. He put her as Secretary of Labor in, in Albany or of, of Industrial. And um, that was just incredible because, you know, they were worried that the, most of the people working in that department didn't ever have a woman boss. But, but anyway, she, she went to Washington. She was really in many ways the architect of the social policy of the New Deal, you know, labor, unemployment insurance, um, she had her hand as chair of a special committee that drafted the Social Security bill. So she was a key mm-hmm. one. Henry Morgenthau, Jr. was his neighbor in, in Dutchess County, and he went to Washington and became Secretary of the Treasury. James Farley became – he was his chair of the Democratic Party in New York, became the Postmaster General and chair of the National Party. Um, so those three – and. Uh, were big people, and Harry Hopkins was another name that people might hear from history, who was also involved with the creation of relief programs during the Depression in New York and then in, and then in the New Deal also. So one of, the, one of your chapters is called FDR and Radio, the New Political Medium of the 1920s. As, as you know... We had met several years ago when I had first started Focus on Albany, which is a podcast. And now 
the shows that I do for a podcast, it's edited, and when now I'm now on the radio on WCAA. So FDR and radio um, rings a bell with me. Um, yeah. Was he was he a when he would go on the radio? Would it be a national program? Um, no, it was mostly geared to New York State at that time, but uh, sometimes he did make a couple addresses, I think, that were carried nationally when he was running for president, but he was still governor. I think there was definitely one of those. And I, there may have been another time where one of his speeches was picked up on the national um, radio feed, but mm-hmm. most of them originated out of WGY in Schenectady, which I like to mention being local. And that, of course, was the flagship of General Electric, which was based in Schenectady. Um, right. And, and you know, it was his, radio was a very big key to his success because as Eleanor, I quoted her and Francis Perkins saying that he had this manner that assured people during the Depression, they heard him speak on the radio like they were sitting in there, like he was sitting in the living room with them, you know. And he spoke in a folksy kind of, you know, he'd say, my friends, you know. And he'd, he'd use the radio to educate people. He'd explain to them, okay, here's what we were doing in the state budget, and I want you to understand how, you know, the process works and how your taxes are spent on different programs. So people developed this bond with him, you know, and it was it was a big key, Eleanor thought, to his success. Um, I, I had tried several times to get Andrew Cuomo to come on WCAA, and when I had seen uh, Governor Hochul on, on Lock Street when she first became governor, you know, I got the card from her her chief of staff, and I, I told the chief of staff that I wanted her to come on WCAA, but I don't think they realized the importance of a station in Albany getting their message out. So when I read about um, FDR and the radio, that really sparked my interest. Um, so when... when um, when FDR was the the I'm sorry when he was governor, what propelled him to decide to run for uh, president of the United States? Well, I guess some people would say he always wanted that job. You know, his 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 cousin Teddy Roosevelt was president. It was. He was following in his footsteps. You know, Teddy had been the assistant secretary of the Navy also, and then he then he became governor of New York, then he became vice president, and here you had Franklin really following along in that way. But he, um, the other thing was he was the governor of New York, and, you know, New York at that time was the largest state in the country. It had the most electoral votes. You know, we we have only about 27 now. We had 45 back then to show you how big our oh, population wow. was. And um, anybody who was governor of New York, um, and there had been several presidents before him, Grover Cleveland and uh, Fillmore, I think there was, oh, and Teddy, you know. So three people had been governor, had been president from New York before him. So it was a natural thing for the governor of New York to be uh, considered as a contender for president. And... Um, 
he was ambitious and and he liked politics. He knew how to get things done. I guess as we've learned from history. So in the book, you mentioned the um, Lake Placid Olympics from what was it, nineteen thirty-two? Yes. Tell us a and little he, bit about that. Well. President Hoover, it was only the third Winter Olympics and the first one Winter Olympics in the United States, and, and Hoover didn't go. He was the president. So Roosevelt was the, there to open the Winter Olympics. It wasn't as big of a deal then, but it was on the radio, and he used the occasion to depart from the remarks that normally you just recite a, a script that tells you, I'm opening the games. But he departed from that and said, you know, there's there's war going on between Japan and China right now, and I wish that it was like the days when, when the Olympics were held in the old days when, when a period of peace was established during the Games when no countries were at war. So he made that comment, which, of course, was rather historic at the time. So he had a grand time up there. He loved Lake Placid. Eleanor went with him, and she went down the bobsled, which a couple of days earlier there had been a crash on the bobsled that injured many yeah. members of the So it was, uh, it was an interesting, uh, colorful time. You know, back then there was no TV. There was, I guess, uh, the, in, in the movie theaters they had newsreels and stuff. When Franklin Roosevelt was elected president, do you think a majority of people did not realize that he was handicapped? Well, that's a very good question, and it's an interesting point, because it's true that people may have known or they did know that he had polio. They may not have known how disabling it was for him, that he really couldn't walk without braces and crutches and holding on to the arm of, of his son or an aide. Um, so he was very rarely pictured. He asked the media not to film him getting in and out of cars or, you know, struggling to, to move around. And they ab- abided by that in those days. So many people never realized. And, you know, the other thing that was so critical about him is that people said, oh, he's, he's disabled. The minute that he came out with his voice so strong and positive, people sort of forgot about it because he said, obviously, he can do the job. He'd get up there, you know, in that famous inaugural address, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. People just forgot and said, you know, it's not an issue because he knows what he's doing. He's got the energy. When he first was nominated to run for governor, they thought, oh, he'll never never be able to do this job, but we'll put him up there and we'll have the Lieutenant Governor Lehman campaign for him. Well, he took off on in his car and traveled all over the state. He outworked so many people. So it's incredible. So, um, so what role what role did Eleanor Roosevelt play as first lady of Albany and then first lady of Washington? Was she a powerhouse in in Albany? She was becoming a powerhouse. You know, when he got polio in 1921, he was sidelined. He was out of politics. He had to recuperate. And uh, Lewis Howe was his top political advisor who had been with him since he was in the state Senate. And he coached Eleanor and said, you know, you should get involved and speak for Franklin. And that was when women first got the right to vote. And Eleanor became involved in a lot of organizations like the League of Women Voters. She got involved in the state Democratic Party. She would go out and speak for him. 
And over the years, um, she became a force that I felt was so important to mention in the book because she was literally called his conscience. He was a progressive. He had great instincts about serving the common people. But Eleanor really had a feeling for every person. She was really the woman when she went to Washington who fought for equal rights for making sure that women and African Americans were considered for jobs because many times they were discriminated against in employment in the New Deal even. So mm -hmm. what an historic person she was. And, um, you know, I wrote at the end of the book that, you know, she lived 17 years after him. She started her life under the <laughs> being born under Grover Cleveland, and she ended up working with Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and part of the Civil Rights Movement. Mm -hmm. Now, Teddy Roosevelt, he was, he, he was called the progressive, but he was a uh, Republican. How different were the two men? Well, Teddy was, uh, you know, a great outdoorsman, and Franklin had been until he got polio. I mean, Teddy was known for being the trust buster, you know, the square deal. He was a, he, His mark on history was that he broke up the monopolies, and we hear a lot about that today with the huge, uh, you know, Facebook and the technology monopolies today, or as right. some call them, monopolies. So he was a trust buster back in the days of, you know, when railroads and, and oil were r running the show. Um, and uh, he, he really made a mark on the White House. And he, Franklin viewed him as a role model, um, even though, as I said, they were from two different parties. You've got to remember, it was the progressive era. And both parties, you know, they passed the amendment for direct election of senators. Women got the right to vote in 1920. Um, mm -hmm. Both parties were trying to move in that direction at the time. So, you know, you're you're an advocate of history. Would you say that Franklin Roosevelt is in the top ten as far as you're concerned? Well. Not with what I'm concerned, but, you know, most historians, professional historians, rank him in the top three, you know, Jefferson, Lincoln, Washington, and and Roosevelt, top four. Um, so he consistently gets that, and some rank him even higher than that, you know, number one or two. Um, I think like anything in history, which, you know, I'm an amateur historian, I've studied it, I think that it's the person and the times that they're in. And Roosevelt was in a very critical time, the Great Depression, and he rose to the occasion. And he really, you know, um, inspired the country to have hope. People were afraid, you know, during the Depression. They'd never seen a calamity like that in this country where 25% of the people were out of work. They were on the streets begging, selling apples. And he gave people, you know, also the banks were closed, uh, and he had, you know, closed them for a few days, and then they reopened. He helped bring confidence to people, and um, it was just an extraordinary bit of leadership that he exhibited in a very difficult time. We all know uh, the mark that, that he left on America, you know, with, with uh, the New Deal and you know, all of those wonderful programs that he started, Social Security. But what mark did Franklin Roosevelt 
leave on Albany. Because what I had read was that even back then when he became became governor, the uh, uh, O'Connell machine was operating in full force back then. Yeah, in Albany they were... They were operating, and in fact, um, when he ran for governor, the, there was some t- the talk of having some of the people from Albany run. You know, Mayor John Boyd Thatcher was not, was considered for governor, but anyway, Roosevelt, Al Smith wanted Roosevelt, and I should point out that while Roosevelt stands out large in history, over towering over everybody, Al Smith at that time was the towering governor of New York. He had served four two-year terms. It was only two years then. But he was the person who created the modern state government. He he got an amendment passed to the state constitution to give the governor more power over the budget, which we still have today. And Roosevelt came in really complimenting and saying Smith was the one who created you know, a powerful executive in New York and who did a lot to straighten out state government and make it modern. Um, but, of course, Roosevelt then, being in the Depression, he was the one who who implemented a lot of that. Um, and, you know, and then and, – and Smith, you know, they, they ended up not – they ended up being at loggerheads because Smith tried to win the, the presidential nomination against Roosevelt in 1932. And he was kind of like, here's my understudy running – he's the guy I picked to run for governor. Now he's running for president. I should have another chance. I lost in 1928 because there was – you know, the economy was riding high and they were bigoted against Catholics. Well, now the economy right. stinks. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it's an interesting wow. story between the two of them. Uh-huh. So how long did it take you to write your book on Franklin and Eleanor? Well, you know, it's funny. I started reading uh, some books about Roosevelt, and I've read some before this. But right around when the pandemic started, I was reading a book about Roosevelt. And then I started to read some more. I said, I'm going to read some more about him. And I had this idea about writing about his time as governor, and I began researching and said, wow, this is really interesting. I didn't know, when I write books, I don't know if they're going to turn into a book. I kind of like think, okay, let's see what I have here. And then I just started writing in July of 2020, which is, what, 17 months ago, and just kept writing and writing. And sooner, you know, after a while, I said, oh, my goodness, I've got uh, – 30,000, 40,000, and 50,000 words, which turned out to about 200 pages. And I said, I got a book. But So you and I both live in Albany, and the Roosevelt's lived in the governor's mansion at the time. From your understanding, did Franklin and Eleanor frequent any maybe restaurants or places to go to. Um, Are you aware of them mingling in the city of Albany? You know, not too much. I mean, there is uh, the Women's City Club here in Albany has a page on their website about Eleanor was a member, at least in name, of that group. And she, uh, she lamented that she was working as a teacher and used to commute to New York City when Franklin was governor. She worked at the Todd Hunter School 
And so she lamented that she didn't spend as much time meeting what she said, the old Dutch families of Albany. I should have liked to have known them better, she said. Um, but I think that, you know, she was certainly during the campaign season and in the political season, I think they were out and about. I quoted in the book that she spoke at the Ten Eyck Hotel once that was down on North Pearl Street where she spoke to the state Democratic Party. She was involved in, you know, the League of Women Voters, as I mentioned. So she was out and about. I mean, Franklin, it was harder for him to go anywhere, you know, with his situation right. he had with polio. But, right. I mean, I think that that uh, certainly the local politicians and the O'Connells and all of those people, they certainly mingled with them, and they were over at the mansion probably on a regular basis. Okay. So... Um... Do you have any understanding of the interaction between Dan O'Connell and uh, Franklin Roosevelt? Were they chummy? Were they friendly? Were they not friendly? Um, I don't have an awful lot on that. I mean, actually, Paul Grandal in his book on Mayor Corning had a little bit about that. Um, I think, you know, Roosevelt was a reformer, not so much geared against the Albany machine. He was against Tammany Hall in New York City, and, and he went, went against them. And he actually, you know, ended up forcing Ma Mayor Jimmy Walker out of office for his corruption, which I put in the book. So he wasn't certainly against the Albany machine. And Mayor Thatcher, I have a few uh, descriptions in there from the New York Times about when Roosevelt was nominated for president um, and when he was reelected as governor in 1930, how the Albany machine, you know, including O'Connell and Thatcher, had huge parades for Roosevelt when he returned to Albany um, after the election for governor, re-election, and then after the nomination for president. They had this huge parade. I included the whole story. They got it off at Union Station. They had a parade up State Street over to the mansion. There were a thousand people on the mansion grounds. They had horns blaring and sirens and people hanging out of windows. It was, it was a great scene that none of us really know much about unless we, we read this history. So if anybody is interested in purchasing your book, how could they do so? Well, right now it's up on Amazon.com. Now, I know some people like to buy locally, and, and it's just not in the bookstores yet. It will be in January because it take, Amazon's sort of a print-on-demand. They do this very quickly for one book. But, you know, to, to print in bulk, it's going to take a few weeks to get into the bookstores. But people can order it if they want from the bookstore here in Albany. It's Stuyvesant Plaza, which I've been working with to publish the book. They have a, a you know, a publishing platform. Um, and it'll be in some other bookstores in, in our area. But any you can go to any local bookstore and ask them to order the book if you want to do it that way. But Amazon says they'll get it to you by Christmas, which is Amazon, you know. I gotta, yeah. I gotta have it out there on all the available ways to sell it, you know. Right. And for people around here, I'm happy to, uh, when I get some copies myself, to sign it and, and you know, hopefully do some publicity about it and sign it and get it to people. So. Great, uh, you know. Thank you so much for doing it. I think, you know, people should know a little bit about the governor's mansion and and their residence so i applaud your efforts you well, have been listening you. 
Mike Burgess, and his new book is Franklin and Elnor in New York. I'm Cynthia Pooler. This is Focus on Albany. If you like this show, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a wonderful day. Okay. You're going to send me a link, right?